Welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm Dennis McGrath. What do you do when success comes calling, and instead of struggling to get your first season up and on the air, you're stuck trying to break stories for season four? That's rare air for a Canadian TV series these days, but like everything else about Flashpoint, they're making their own rules as they go. From neophyte creators in season one to finally running their own writing room for season four, Mark Ellis and Stephanie Morgenstern have charted a challenging course for themselves. Their reward has been to watch their show pick up multiple Gemini nominations and awards, and recently, a WGC Screenwriting Award for Best One Hour Script. They join me tonight from Camera Lounge in beautiful balmy Toronto. So, welcome. Hello. How are you? So, we're here to talk about your favorite Fault of Towers episodes. And, uh, no. Um, I guess, maybe, why don't we start from where you are right now? Tell us a little bit about where you are in your production cycle. You're in season four. How many episodes do you have? How many people do you have in your room? Uh, what point in the cycle are you right now? We're almost exactly halfway through uh, 18 episodes. Mm-hmm. So we're just, uh, uh, yeah, we're just prepping episode 409. 409, yeah, uh, shooting 18. First season we did 13. We did 18 in the second. We did 13 in the third. And we're doing 18 again this year. Um, We've got uh, six of us in the room right now. Um, really, really, really strong room this year. Uh, a lot of folks who are new to the show, um, but but really, really uh, great team players and hard workers. And, and we've had some uh, really strong um, uh, freelancers as well. Great. In the early part of the season. Um, how much do you feel those extra five episodes? Like, is it, you know, I mean, you guys are, are one of the few Canadian shows that, I mean, you pra- that's practically a U.S. order there, 18 episodes. It's really tough. Um, and, and I can't help thinking as we're shooting episode nine or about to shoot episode nine, how glorious it would be to only be doing 13. And <laughs> I, I'd be at the cottage already. But, uh, but 18, it, there, is a, there is a little tipping point where it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge amount of work. But we had a bit of a jump this year. And we... Uh, we made a sacrifice and a trade-off between having a bit more free time and developing more scripts. Mm-hmm. So we chose a few freelancers to work with, and Steffi and I wrote the first episode of the season, and we worked with uh, three other writers to develop three other scripts before we hit the ground running in fall with uh, a full room. So we had those scripts um, firmly uh, down the pipeline, and then we, we picked up with another batch of five, which we got to mostly the first draft stage before we went into production. So we had seven or eight scripts at first draft when production began, which was which That's is really, good. really good. That's a big leg up. Um, and we've managed to stay ahead of the curve. And uh, fourth season, you kind of, you know, you, 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 you know your show, right? Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of the mistakes you've made in the past, you can... Um, you can nip in the bud before you make them, right? It's a, the, the, I've often thought that that's one of the tragedies that, you know, you see that on U.S. shows all the time. Right? You see at the end of the first season, they're like, they know what the show is. And in Canada, we've got this precarious thing often where they don't go to the second season, and you, th- and you know that even if it wasn't the best season in the world, by the end of that first season, they know infinitely more than they did at the beginning. So it's, it's kind of gratifying to hear you say that you can make those sort of choices. But I'm, I, I'm j- going to jump around a little bit because I'm going to try to follow up on what you just said. And uh, what you just said that struck me as very interesting was this idea of you took a trade-off 
We took more time to pre-develop uh, and less sort of break time in the middle. Uh, it strikes me that production, the thing that maybe people who don't have a lot of production experience, writers who don't have a lot of production experience in Canada, don't understand is that it's all those kinds of choices. What other choices are there like that that you face sort of in the room or on the show? That sort of thing where it's a trade-off here. You know, you can do this, you can do that. Uh, what kind of trade-offs do you find yourself facing and how do you know, you know, which direction to tack? I think um, some of these some of these things you have to balance you only learn after several months and after several years you become a little bit more adept at being able to uh, pick your battles. I think that's the main thing that makes me feel like a stronger creative person now than I was a couple of years ago is um, if something is profoundly upsetting to me creatively, I think I have the experience now to think that's actually not such a big deal, putting it in perspective with something else. If I, if we, uh, you know, as a, as a writing team, um, make this concession, we will actually buy ourselves permission to hang on to something that's actually even more valuable to us later. Like there's there's a constant bargaining. There's you're working with strong personalities, strong opinions, strong passions. So many people are committed to your show from different angles and with different things to contribute. Um, everybody needs to be gratified uh, about their involvement in the show. So if something, you know, if you if a note strikes you as maybe a little bit beside the point, but you say, you know what, I'll let this one go. I will accommodate that note. I'll do my best with that note, and that'll buy need permission to hang on to something that I care about a great deal uh, further down the line. I think this kind of... Um, give and take. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a give and take. It's picking your battles, knowing when to freak out and not to freak out. And when you do freak out, having it <laughs> in perspective of there are much worse problems to, to have than this particular one. I think you also have to learn to pace yourself. And pacing is a big, important part of the season. And I talked about those four scripts that were developed ahead of time. So, you know, we had this luxury now of having four scripts, and there's five that are kind of in pretty good shape, and there's a whole bunch more that are being developed. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of scrutiny on the first four episodes of the season because they're fresh, and uh, people are raring to go, and they have time to give notes because no one's split, you know, and, and uh, their, 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 their focus isn't as split by the other demands of production and the episodes coming down the line and post-production and all of these things. So, you know, you need to be able to pace yourselves and say, I can keep slaving on this episode and make it perfect, or I can discipline myself and say, this is a good episode, we need to move on, because if I spend all of my time on these four or five, then episode 16 <laughs> is going to suffer by the time you get down towards the finish line. So maintaining that, that buffer is really important. And, you know, I wouldn't say television is about compromise at all. You want to make it be the best you can, you know, um, but you need to do it in the time that you you have. You need to. We shoot our show in in seven days, and uh, the, all of your episodes are seven days. Well, this is the first year we sh we we have a seven day schedule, and then we we've we've uh, slotted in some floater days. So we we pick up the bits and pieces. We shoot a lot of second unit stuff, um, um, probably a little bit more than 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 we should. Um, and but it's so it's seven days, but two full units all the time. Not not always two full units, okay. you know, but but often, and we'll always shoot uh, uh, two cams at least as well. Okay, excellent. Um, you were one of the first shows, you know, uh, it used to be back in the in the olden times, um, you know, seven years ago. Uh, <laughs> Canada didn't do pilots. We would 
it was thought to be too expensive and we would go straight to series off scripts and that has sort of its own problems and it, ironically the funny thing is the the Americans and BC especially started trying that a couple of years back and it turned out to be a disaster and they immediately went back to the pilot system but Canada, for better or for worse you were the first of the new way of doing things in Canada which now most of the time they do do a pilot but you did a pilot uh, called Sniper at that time that wound up being very very different from what Flashpoint became so uh, you know we don't want to dwell too long on this but just to, to show how far you've come let's go back a little bit to uh, t- talk a bit about that pilot and how it changed and you know, when it came down, down, down time to sort of figure out how you, you were going to tell the story and, and what a flashpoint was going to be every week. Uh, tell me about that process and uh, maybe those early days in the first season. Because the amazing thing about that, of course, is that this was your first professional credit. You were, I mean, you were pretty much, you must have been scared all the time. So, <laughs> so, tell, so if you can go back to that pocket of fear and talk about that time, it might be good. <laughs> Well, we had a pretty unorthodox start because uh, we'd pitched the, uh, the idea uh, of, of a sniper who has to take a shot, and it's his first time he's had to kill someone, and he has to cope with the emotional aftermath. And that was the concept that we pitched uh, to CTV and was greenlit as a movie of the week. And uh, that script was, was, was around for uh, a year or, or so. Um, it was a story we really liked. It was about Ed Lane, you know, Hugh Dillon's character, ultimately. There really wasn't much of a focus on the other members of the team. Um, it was really a story about him and his family, how he coped with the aftermath of the shooting, and that was the angle we, and that was the story we wanted to tell. It was a story about the human cost of, uh, of being the hero in the moment and what it's really like behind the scenes. And structurally, the, the moment of that shot itself happened pretty much right in the middle, wasn't it? It was the events uh, leading to that, and there was at least as much aftermath as there was story leading to it. Oh, yeah, the, the, the entire second half was the aftermath, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and that sort of you know, found its way upwards uh, up the pile at the network, and, uh, and there had been talk internally uh, at the network for some time about the viability of this as a series, and when it came down to the crunch and were they going to greenlight the movie of the week or not, and would it potentially be a backdoor pilot or not, um, we were asked to reconfigure it as a pilot. It was going to be in contention as a pilot and no longer as a movie of the week. And we had about 10 days to turn that around. (coughs) So there's the beginning of the fear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was also very different in tone from what the pilot that got... um, There were, I guess, two versions. There There was the pilot, and then there was the official first episode, and there were some significant changes from one to the other. I think the our departure point in wanting to tell the story was a little bit darker than the destination that we ended up having. I think there's a, a very life-affirming quality to the show. It's, you know, there's, there's loss, but there's also heartbreak and uh, embracing and, you know, happy peace being kept and so on. But I think our original impulse had been a little bit darker. There were darker relationships among the team. There was more friction among them. There was uh, an extramarital relationship between Ed and female sniper. There was a lot of, there was a bit more grit to it. There was a bit more, it had more shadows to it. And in the transformation of that into a model that could be replicated week after week, but different enough that people might keep joining into the season, um, it got, it got a little bit, well, lighter is the wrong word, but more accessible. It's not lighter. It's just, just, you know, by, by the time the pilot was 
um, the pilot was was picked up by CTV, and then shortly thereafter, it was uh, acquired by CBS. And you know, we all had this conversation, Stephanie and I, and Bill and Amory, and uh, um, we're like, okay, this is you know, this is what the networks are saying, and this is a this is a broadcast network show, and uh, they you know we're not going to be able to go home with the team um, too much. Uh, we we learned very much from from CBS actually in that first season, you know, and and it was a tremendous experience for us because you know uh, they know how to do procedurals, <laughs> they really really know, and and they uh, uh, they, they 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 guided uh, Tassie and us and Bill and Emery, you know, uh, along the lines of of character development and you know you can give give teaspoonfuls of 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 character, but not buckets, and um, make sure that every episode stands alone. And uh, your first six episodes, you should consider a pilot. Uh, and then that evolves. No, you know what? Actually, all thirteen episodes, you should view them as a pilot. And none of your audience has ever tuned in before, and you need to reintroduce your characters. And in fact, that is something we still do. We still write every episode. Um, so that if you've watched the show for the first time in episode 55, you're not going to be like, huh, what's going on? Um, and we also, uh, you know, addressing the, the darker elements that Stephanie talked about, I think, you know, in, in, in people love heroes in network television and procedurals, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and we made a, a conscious choice to, to view every member on that team as heroic. And there is something larger than life um, when someone is a hero. But what was good about it is that we found ways ways to speak to the theme of the series, which we've always fought for and which we've always, I think, um, gone back to throughout the four seasons. And the theme of Flashpoint is the human cost of heroism. So we have earned the episodes that actually do get into the darker corners of the job in, in, in the first season we did an episode called Haunting the Barn, which was uh, about a, uh, uh, Ed's mentor who comes back to the station one day, and it's all, you know, friends greeting each other in, in good times, and then the team gets a call, and they're off on a bomb call, and he shuts himself in the briefing room and lays out photos and, um, and is, uh, drinks a bottle of rye and is about to kill himself. That's pretty dark stuff for, for network television, but, you know, I think they also really respected um, what we were trying to say. We also, you know, we got a lot of notes, though, in the first season. Um, just, well, why, why don't they just shoot this guy, you know? <laughs> why is he so upset? Isn't that, isn't that his job? Why is he so yeah, upset? so he had to shoot the guy. What's, what's the big deal? And, uh, and, and we, we, we explained that, you know, that it is a big deal. And CBS was, was very respectful of research and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And... Anytime you had a creative discussion that was about, well, I don't really believe this, or wouldn't he really do that? And wouldn't you know, they some shoot the gun right out of his hand. Yeah, that. I mean, yeah, and and you would say no. I I talked to a cop, and this is what they this is what they say about that. And almost instantly, ninety nine times out of a hundred, you would get a great, you know. Yeah, and, it's funny because I'm uh, you know I'm uh, uh, I'm Irish and I'm from New York, so I know about ten cops. And uh, and especially in my parents' generation, they uh, the funny thing about it is I remember one time being at a God, this is such a cliche at at a funeral, and uh, and the cops got talking and there were there were about eight of them there and uh, one had fired a service revolver 
in New York. Oh, and these guys had all been cops for 20 years. So that disconnect between the, you know, between the reality of the boom, 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 and, and, and what it really is to do that is, is I think, uh, is a testimony to the, to the show. But, but, but to back into it another way, let's, let, let's go back to a little, bit, a little bit of what was said in that first season, the Devil's Advocate sort of stuff, was uh, there's this ongoing debate about you know, what, what makes Flashpoint Canadian. Is it Canadian? Is it Canadian enough? It's in Toronto, but we don't say it's Toronto. And uh, talk a bit about what you feel the Canadian DNA of this show is beyond the fact that it's just a bunch of Canadians that are writing it. It is absolutely Canadian. It's Canadian because those cops don't fire their guns. And maybe our times have changed a little bit these days. And, uh, you know, and, uh, I'm as dismayed as probably a lot of us are about um, our shifting foreign policy. But... When Flashpoint came onto the air in um, 2008, we were at the tail end of the Bush administration. And I think Canadians uh, uh, have uh, embraced the, the notion that we are uh, we're a nation of peacekeepers. We, we don't go into countries and invade them and, uh, and acquire them. I wish we did more peacekeeping than, than we seem to do these days. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think it's fair to say that we, we have viewed ourselves as a nation of peacekeepers historically. So I think that it's not unfamiliar terrain to a Canadian viewer to, uh, to have a show about cops that don't fire their guns, that are interested in talking and negotiating. And I think that's a very Canadian trait as well. You did something very interesting there. You, you started, we're a nation of peacekeepers. And then you, you amended it. You said, you know, it's... We see ourselves as peacekeepers, yeah. and in many ways, what I think is interesting and what was di- what's problematic about about the kind of writing that we do in this country often is that we we're so self-aware a lot of the time that you know we look at these American and Ameri- the number one thing that Americans are great at is myth building. You know, they believe that th- there are things that are not true, but they believe that they're true, and they play to those myths and those mythic sort of stories is what bring people back week after week. And what strikes me about your show that's really great is that, again, you allow them to be heroes. You allow, you, you allow emotional moments to play out, and you don't undercut. You never undercut anything. You go for it. When you're going to go for something, you go for it. And you don't do a Canadian thing of, well, it's this, but we're ironically commenting on it, and we're doing this, and it's not really kind of like this. It's sort of like this, but it's not, you know, you just, you go straight at it. And is that a conscious choice? Um, I, I think we, uh, it's funny when you, when you talk about just really going for it, I think of the huge sentimental quality that the stories sometimes have. Mm-hmm. Um, almost every revision is prefaced with, you know, the, the notes that we get are, <clears throat> Could we get more emotion? Is there a way to make this even more heartbreaking? Is there a way to make this person, make us feel ourselves in the shoes of this person having this horrible dilemma and torn in two pieces and so that we are in tears along with... Um, I think there is a, a huge, and I, I don't mean sentimental in a bad way, but there's a huge s- sentimental quality to it that is sometimes absolutely shameless, like the tears and the little... The little toy and the, like there's almost there's almost always well okay, maybe not always but um, w- we seem to have two general colors that are uh, I think that our, our stories come in some of them are more harder edged there's the more blue ones and there's the more softer cushy pinker ones um, and we tend to kind of alternate between you know hardened criminal and broken hearted mother doing something desperate um, 
But, it's, but for some reason, when you said you really go for it, I'm just thinking of, yeah, let's be shameless. Let's see how painful this can be, but in a good way, in a redemptive way, if possible. Uh, and that sort of seems to be the thing that, you know, again, if there is, and I think we have to take responsibility and, and admit that there is, if there is a disconnect between a lot of the writing, a lot of the creating, a lot of the shows that we do in Canada and our Canadian audience who loves watching all the American shows. It's this fact that often we won't go for that shamelessness. And Canadians like that shamelessness just as much as the Americans do. I, I, was, t- I was telling somebody, we, we, got two, we got two things of soup, uh, you know, and one is sort of intellectualism and asceticism, and one is shameless cornball emotion. And, you know, and we have a big, big ladle, and we have a tiny teaspoon. And we use the wrong one for each one in this country. Um, you know, ladling on that emotion is not the worst thing in the world for entertaining people uh, when they come down, the, uh, they come home at the end of the, the day. Do you find that that helps you? Does that help you? In, uh, is, has that been sort of a way that, that you've been able to drive the stories more? Uh, because you've got a very... Again, with that procedural thing, there's a lot of people that think the procedural is inherently a limiting kind of um, format. It's a, it's a difficult balance. I think we are very, um, very driven by empathy. We believe, uh, or compassion, or trying to make you feel something that is not within your ordinary sphere. Feel something for this you know, uh, troubled teenager. Feel something for a desperate father. Um, I think the extremes of compassion are things that we try to explore alongside the action. So that's kind of um, yeah, but we want to we want to inspire a visceral response rather than an intellectual response. Like mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And um, you know, we talked about the first season, but in the second season, we really reinvented the show to some degree. So so let's let's talk about I that. I think it's a good segue because you, yeah. you've got it. You, you really you know you're doing this show. You've never you know you've gotten through your your first six pilots, your first thirteen pilots, or whatever it might be. And uh, do you ever reach a point, did you reach a point then where you're like, ah, it's a SWAT team, and what now? Yeah, Yeah, because in the first season we were almost always going to a single location, and we would stay in that location, we would meet the subjects uh, in the first act, usually in the first few scenes of the show. Uh, The team would show up sometime in the second act, and we'd be there all the way until the fifth act. Which means that you have a long negotiation and a standoff that's going to go on. Either somebody's going to get shot at the end of the picture, or somebody's going to put down the gun and they're going to walk away. And uh, in the first half of the second season, we uh, we all on the creative side felt the challenge of that, and um, we were finding it difficult to find uh, new arenas that you know that were going to feel fresh at the same time. Because by the time you had 14, 15, 16 episodes, you you need to need to open things up a little bit. Um, CBS came into play at this point. They put their finger on this as well, and we inherited a, an executive that came from the Criminal Minds kind of uh, episodic stuff at CBS, which, which is very... It's, it's almost the anti-flashpoint to me. So even though we're procedural, I find shows like Criminal Minds and CSI don't really have an emotional human component um, to their stories. Uh, but we were asked to make ourselves more procedural and more like these shows. And in the first season, we met our Jack Swanson, who was going to get the heart for his daughter by hell or high water with a gun in the hospital, and even if it took all episode. Uh, and when we 
shook things up. You know, that was a story about, about the why. How are we going to talk to this guy? How are we going to reach him? What can we learn about him so he can put the gun down? In the second and third seasons, we layered on top of the why, the who, the what, and the where, which are classic procedural questions. So we start from the point of view of the team. They get a hot call. All they know is that it's you know some woman who has a gun in the mall, and they go, and they have to figure out who she is. Oh, she's not at the mall anymore. She's gone somewhere else now. We have to find her. We have to investigate. We've got to get eyewitness reports. We've got to... Um, split the team, for one thing. Split the team up. The team. Mm-hmm. And that was a very difficult adjustment for us to make because we had this incredibly well-researched show. Uh, we'd spent a lot of time learning about what SWAT cops do, and one thing that they don't do is they don't go splitting up on on, a, on, a, on an incident. I they don't go knocking questions. on doors and asking people questions. <laughs> so we're like, ah, how could we do this on, on our show? And yeah, but, but at the same time, too, crime scene investigators are creepy losers. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and House sends doctors... Uh, breaking into uh, patients' homes to gather yeah. evidence and see what they may have eaten from under the sink that they yeah. shouldn't, right? Yeah. So I'm waiting for the teacher procedural where, like, they go to the job at, where they, the kid works after work and get them fired and then, you know, <laughs> start scooping the ice cream themselves. And There's pot in here, you know. <laughs> so, so that was kind of... Um, there was a whole structural change. That was much more... There's, we've been operating more on the um, emotion, compassion, empathy model, which is dump all of the things that will break your heart on the screen in the first act so that you're there for the ride and, oh my God, what's going to happen to this person I care about that could be me? And we switched that or experimented for a while and then found a balance with the mystery model, which is, what the heck's going on? I don't know any more than the team does and I will learn with the team who this, what brought this person here? What are they doing? Is it a gun call or is it a, a domestic violence call or is it a knife call? What kind? Of, we don't even know what kind of call this is. All we know is so you sort of throw yourself into the middle of some rapidly unfolding crime, learning what the team knows. This way you get to go on the ride with the team rather than balancing who am I with? Am I with this bad guy, the bad guy of the week, or am I with the team? So there's the sort of there's a compassion versus mystery continuum. We started to shift more towards the mystery and then eventually found ourselves in a balance between the two. So it sounds to me like what you know, I mean, uh, one of the things that's always uh, but I've always admired you about your work ethic is uh, is how much you really do root things in research. Um, uh, and at a certain point, it sounds to me like you put away the research and you go, well, the show wants to be something else. The show wants to, you know, there are demands to the storytelling and demands <coughs> to the format that need to be addressed. And if the SWAT team has to become more investigative, then so be it. But um, that had to have been, I mean, was that... How painful was that transition? To, uh, and was, I mean, were, were there, was there conflict around it? Was it was it hard for you to? Uh, you know, at this point too, now you've had one season under your belt, but you're still new. So, like, you know, <laughs> how did you sort of? It strikes me that there were a lot of shoals inherent in that kind of transition. How did you navigate them? Well, you get a lot of voices. You get a lot more scrutiny in your second season than you do in your first as well. And there are a lot of voices and and. Uh, you know, it, it took a while for us to really understand, I think, what um, what we needed to do to the show to make it work. Um, and we made mistakes um, collectively, all of us. You know, uh, Stephanie and I, our producers, our writers, our executives, everybody suddenly said, ah, we have to make this more like Criminal Minds. And so the <laughs> script came out that had uh, wordy 
um, checking out a blood spatter and Sam digging a bullet out of a wall and and flashbacks all of a sudden they never did flashbacks before right and 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 we read that episode and and we thought uh, and we sent it to the networks and fortunately the network response was. <laughs> you may have pushed this too far. So we went on a hiatus for a, a, a couple of weeks. And uh, Stephanie and I and uh, some of our writers and um, Bill and Anne-Marie, we locked ourselves in a room and we talked through all the possible scenarios. What do we like about the show? What do we need to keep? What do we need to preserve? Um, and then, uh, you know, came up with a lot of blue sky um, ideas. And then at the end of the day, Stephanie and I... Uh, retreated and we came up with a go forward plan and uh, we didn't uh, sign our names to it this was just like this is Flashpoint mm -hmm. and we sent it off to the networks and we laid out rules and um, we said this is what the show needs to be to become more investigative to give it longevity to open up storytelling areas and possibilities and this is what we need to do to preserve the emotional core and the theme of the show that, that has, has brought viewers to it in, 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 in quite good numbers. And, uh, and everyone blessed that, that plan. And, and now, uh, you go right there, but, that, but it strikes me, I don't know if it strikes anybody else in the audience, but somewhere in there there's, a, there's an incredibly courageous act. Uh, and really what you did there was you, you kind of rolled a hard eight. <laughs> was there a moment? Was there a time in between the sending in of that document and the "Yes, great, this is what we're going to do"? That you spent any time thinking, "Oh my God, what have I done? My career is over." Like, were you just so super confident in that this is the only way to go? Or, I mean, you know, how did that? Like, what was what were you feeling at that moment? I think we we're. Uh, I'm trying to push the emotion here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think what yeah, there's always there's always fear involved if something can suddenly end. Mm -hmm. that's but there was also the feeling of, this is the show that I want, like, every show involves sacrifices of, of your life and your time and your family. Well, this is the show that I want to make sacrifices for. If this is not the show that goes forward, I'm okay with that. We were both prepared to walk away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and we didn't have to. There is a, a, it's an incredible, you know what, actually, you came in and talked to us that year. When I was in Banff a couple of years ago. There's an amazing – I'm, I'm sort of trying to develop this grand unified theory of show running because show running is sort of a uh, – you know, it's still a, a fraught and a controversial topic in Canada. Um, you know, it's accepted in the United States. Britain's got a mixed system. But in Canada, there, there seems to be this still ongoing battle, the struggle between the so-called creative producers and, and uh, writer showrunners. And Ron Moore, uh, who did Battlestar Galactica, came in and uh, – I forget what the project was, but he had another project that was – Something was absolutely dear to his heart before Battlestar Galactica came along. And he had written lots of drafts, and it was supposed to go, and it was like the day before it was supposed, uh, 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 the network had demanded all these changes. And the day before it was supposed to go, like he had, they were crewed up, they were cast. And he just went, you know what? No, I don't think this is the right way to go. I think we should, um, I, think I, I, I think it needs to go back the way it was, or I walk away. And the network went, okay, that's fine. They pulled the plug, and he walked away. And, and they were like, did you ever regret that decision? And he's like, no, I didn't regret that decision for a second because I didn't want to make that show. That show wouldn't have worked. I wouldn't have been happy. And if you listen to his podcast, the thing that strikes me about him that's really interesting is that every mistake that, that's in the writing, he cops to immediately. It strikes me that if you're a writer, showrunner, creator, 
you have to be very, very, very close to on the ground on what your mistakes are, what your limitations are, what you did right, what you did wrong. You can't have delusions. You've got to you got to stay stay close to it in a way, and it sounds to me that that's sort of what you're saying too. In terms of you had you had this point where this was the biggest break you'd ever gotten, yet you had to be ready to walk away from it. Is that right, or am I? I think it was a time. It was a very dramatic and conflicted time, but I think what we came out of that with is I think we all redefined for ourselves why we cared mm. and what would make us uh, draw the line and. and something so um, I mean we, we learned from it we learned a lot of new rules from it we learned some concessions from it it came out I think stronger than ever I can't I can't regret any of the drama of that time I can regret how upsetting it, it was to a lot of us involved in it in the middle of it but what we emerged from that with was a rock solid conviction that this is what this was meant to be yeah Sure. <laughs> that sounded great. But no, I, but I think I'd ne- it's, it's, it's a painful process. But I don't think I'd ever felt so sure. I don't think it had ever been tested so hard um, that I that I knew the result of this is something worth that had been worth fighting for. It's funny, you know. We all sit there. We know the screenwriting theory is that you know the the character emerges. You know, it's it, it's all about what the choices the characters make under pressure. Yeah. And yet we we you know we don't always connect that back. It's like. Well, life's kind of like that too, actually. <laughs> you know, that's what we're trying to replicate in this uh, simulacrum of, of what life is like. Um, uh, and yes, I did use the word simulacrum, and I won't apologize for it. Uh, and, um, I, and I won't ask what it means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Google. Um, anyway, uh, so would you say you know, that big reconfigure has that given you the engine to continue? Has the show been reinvented again since? Uh, was that the most major reinvention? that the show went through, do you feel that that got you on to the extendability that you could then go through 13 more and 18 more? Did you fix what was maybe limited in what was done, or has it been an ongoing evolutionary process? Uh, I think we're, we're on an upward curve, which, is, which feels really good. In the second half of that season, we, um, uh, we, we stumbled. There were some episodes that weren't, you know, that are not on our A-list of episodes as we found our feet. I feel like in the third season, um, we started to get onto shore footing, and I think now in the fourth season, we we we, we kind of get it. Um. Okay. <laughs> um, but we're still making mistakes too, like really, you know, big yeah. mistakes that require late night rewrites. So. Sure, always, always. Um, uh, so just a, a couple of other areas I want to ca- I want to cover before we uh, get to screen the episode, and we'll have to set that up that up as well but um i you know not to out you both here but of course you come from that very nefarious kind of uh uh somewhat you know uh reprobate laden uh, uh, profession known as acting and uh you know a lot of writers roll their eyes at the concept of the uh the actor writer uh sometimes unfairly mostly fairly um (laughs) (laughs) but what struck me about you know knowing you as long as I have, and I've been friends with you both for a while, um, you guys, when you approach your writing, you never approach writing as actors. Uh, so I want to talk a bit about acting and writing a little bit because I, I want to talk a little bit about um, it. I feel that the background that you both have in being performers has helped you immeasurably, but it's helped you immeasurably only because you did the work. 
you did, you know, you, you approach things as writers first. So I want to hear maybe in your own words a little bit about, you know, what your attitude is for both of you in terms of that shift from, from acting to writing, what you think it brought to your writing, uh, how you think it affects how you deal with actors, um, which I think is one of the single greatest things that, uh, skill sets that, that writers are not good at, that they need to get good at, because, you know, there's no sense looking, you know, all the crap that we put on about actors, you know, oh, just say the lines and stuff like that. As much as, as much as that might be satisfying to say sometimes, it's not helpful. So talk a little bit about, about that process and that transition and what you think it's brought to you and what you think the strengths are. Um, well, I, th- I, 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 uh, I did do act in film and television, but I did an awful lot of theater, and that's where my passion really was. And uh, theater is, is collaboration. It's a collaborative effort. Um, there's always a lot of respect for the text, which is, which is good. Um, not as much as there is in film and television, I, I find. Um, but I, I, f- you know, I was used to collaborating and listening to uh, directors and writers and other actors and trying to figure things out. And I think television is collaboration as well. And Flashpoint is only successful because of this perfect storm of talent that came together. And that's producers and writers and directors that set the bar and designers and everybody um, right on down to, to you know, Foley. I, you know, and that sh- this show is not successful because of anything we do. It's because of that collaboration. And so I think that I brought, a, you know, especially as a novice, uh, a desire to listen. And I think good actors know how to listen and then interpret. And as a writer working with actors, if an actor isn't listening to me, I'll be much less likely to, to, to do a rewrite on a line. But if they present a, a reasoned thought and they listen to what I say and I listen to what they say, I will sit up with them all night and, and, and work on a piece of dialogue. And, and I love that part of the process. I have a, I have a very deep relationship with Hugh Dillon. <laughs> and he calls me like every day pretty much. Um, and he's great because he respects the text and he, 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 he's faithful to it and you know, we'll make little adjustments to it and they're all great adjustments and they're all about how he internalizes and he's a guy that has a great work ethic and he wants to know what he's going to do when he gets out there on the day and I live vicariously through him you know, I, I get to feel like I'm a bit of an actor in the show as well but, uh, but also as actors we write a lot of scripts and it's not just the projects you get to uh, be involved with it's all the ones that you audition for and you don't get so we both have uh, combined uh, years of reading many, many scripts, service productions on down to children's television and, you know, to Al Pacino and Robert De Niro movies. So you, you, that level of, uh, and, and, and volume of reading is, is a, an amazing um, resource that, that's banked in your brains. And, you know, all good writers, of course, go out and, and, and do the same. I think um, what, what you bring to a role as an actor is... You, you're intensely curious about what is this character, what is their experience, what makes them say the things they say, what makes them not say the things they wish they could say. Sorry, my, my phone is telling me to pick up my daughter from uh, uh, guides, but guides are finished, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just guides finished, like, forever? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't read that. Read that. <laughs> you should have gone, it was really good. Damn! <laughs> Got badges and everything. Um, so when, when you're approaching a role as, as an actor, you're looking for all the interesting 
surprising stuff, the conflicts, the, the, the contradictions in it. And I think you, you can read almost any part and look, and look for where, where is it rich? Where is it like me? What, what is there like me that I can bring to this? And I think as a writer, if you don't give that respect to each character, you're opening a lot of traps for yourself where you're gonna have bad guys saying things like, we meet again, or, you know, not so fast, or, you know, stuff that people only say on TV. But I, I think you sort of, you develop a, a, a reflex of, that's really awkward to say. How can I say that and mean it? How can I say that with a straight face? How can I say that with fewer words? And I think, a background as, as actors help us understand uh, understatement and how often what is said is not what is meant. I mean, if you can write an entire scene where two people are sort of dancing around something that's much too painful to talk about until one of them, you know, drops a drops a clue and then suddenly the whole dynamic changes between the two of them. I think you, I think that helps. I think I don't know if I, if I'm if I'm speaking this clearly, but I think. There is sort of a, an instinct for cliché that we're a little bit trained against because we've approached this as, how can I believe this? Mm. How can I say this with self-respect? From my point of view, I'm entering the room, at, you know, and I'm hearing the themed Indiana Jones when I come in and I say, now you don't, t whatever. Someone else is hearing the music to, uh, you know, the Darth Vader entering the room. But from my point of view, I'm, I'm the hero of this. I'm, even if, even if I'm, you know, the, uh, the subject or the bad guy in an episode. What makes my point of view valid? If you write with that respect for each character, I think you end up with uh, more textured characters, more interesting characters, and that comes from acting. We also learned, you know, to trust our two leads. We had the great gift of writing for Rico Colantoni and, and Hugh Dillon, and the actors that can bring an enormous amount of subtext. And we chose an episode because, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of subtext in, in one or two of these scenes with Rico Colantoni. And, uh, you know, we, we, we also made the mistake uh, of writing scenes that had a lot of, that were subtext, and then throwing them out to actors who had to do them in auditions, who only see those scenes and don't get the story as a whole. And then we would get notes back, um, you know, based on auditions saying, well, this scene doesn't really work, you've got to, and we, it's not, it's not that the scene doesn't work, it's that we didn't give enough direction to the actor. So if you're going to write those scenes, then you need to write into the action lines Exactly what's going on, and find a, a you know a fresh and a fresh way to do it, and not just you know she cries thinking of her little girl. But it's you know. we are getting the marrow here tonight. <laughs> um, flip this now for me, if you would, just briefly, uh, because obviously you're a bit of a shining city on the hill for any of your actor friends that are that are that are looking to write and looking to get into writing, and uh, you know we've had this. There, there was a thing that happened a couple of years ago. Where, where there wasn't a lot of work around, and all the acting agents started telling their, their clients to start writing stuff. And the Canadian networks <laughs> gave a lot of them shows. And uh, so we're finding that sort of situation now. What do you say back? I mean, what, you know, having fully inhabited and really had a trial by fire as reinventing yourself as writers, what don't the actors? who write always understand about writing and about that sort of stuff off the top? Um, that's a hard question for me to answer because I haven't read a lot of stuff that's written by other actors and so I, you know, I, I don't have that level of experience. But, you know, I, 
I think we very respectfully entered this arena and mm-hmm. um, we we knew there's an enormous amount of craft involved and some of that we assimilated as we talked about but we also um, enriched what we knew by reading even more and surrounding ourselves with people that were brilliant writers and letting them take the lead and Tassie Cameron taking the lead in the first season so that we could learn from other people and not just like say oh yeah we know we know how to make a show how hard can that be like there's always we've always seen it as as a as the difficult task that it is and and very very humbly we we we, we we've tried to learn it and and we've we've made mistakes and um but we we've never stopped deferring to people and i i will never stop deferring to the voices in the room and we have um writers that have come into this show this season um who haven't assimilated flashpoint in the way we have or some of our writers who <laughs> who, who have continued to write over multiple seasons but they offer us something fresh and uh and that's really i mean maybe it's the lack of ego i don't know maybe actors have ego maybe that's what you're saying it's a different ego I mean, writers have ego too but i think it's a very different ego you know i think and i think that that you know um All I can imagine. The, the other thing, I hope I'm not. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here. I really, I really not. But one of the things you said to me, I remember, was that you didn't want to start auditioning anymore because now, having been <laughs> on the other side of the camera, <laughs> you just you see actor after actor come in, and I felt the same thing with such a. It took me forever to actually be able to sit at that table and and see actor after actor after actor come into the room, and it's so absolutely awful a process that. That you know, you kind of see in the end that sometimes when they, some of them, when some people get their shot, they go a little crazy. Um, whereas you know, writers come from the place of you know, anybody gets to give you notes. You know, uh, the, the executive's uh, a kid. You know, gets to gets to ma- suggest a major plot point for your your thing, and uh, it's a different way that we got to approach it. I mean. I, I don't know. Steffi, do, do you have any thoughts on that, or is it, am I just barking up the wrong tree? No, no, I, I, but I'm not sure if I understand your question. Do you mean what, what should actors keep in mind if they're planning for Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, work, among, work amongst people smarter than you. Uh, pick your allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn and never stop learning and never assume that you finished. We're still learning. We're still, you know... I mean, I think we've started to lose a little bit that, that reflex of we're going to be discovered any minute as the imposters that we are and who are we to be doing this when, you know, we've had so little track record and stuff like that. I think we're starting to shed that and believe, yeah, we've actually done this and, you know, we can claim that this is ours, this is our baby, this is everybody's baby who's worked on it. You never lose it completely, though, because when you lose it completely, that's the precise moment where you start to suck. <laughs> <laughs> So you're saying we don't suck yet? No, awesome. I'm, yeah, I, fi- I find it hard to believe that you'll suck. Um, okay, uh, uh, one more question, and, and then just uh, and then we'll set up the episode and we'll watch the episode. Um, I'm wondering, just because you sort of were there right now, if you can, in any sort of brief way, talk about some of the writers you've worked with um, along the way, because you've had a good, uh, you know, a good selection come through your your room mm-hmm. in the four seasons, and tell me what you learned from them what you've learned from other writers? Well, um, you know, it all, it started with Tassie, and uh, Tassie, uh, 
Tassie Cameron, Cameron. who's now the, cre- the one of the co-creators and the showrunner of Rookie Blue. Of Rookie Blue, um, and she, you know, she walked into a, a situation where she had creative producers on one side, and she had Mark and Stephanie, who are the creators of the show, and who were going to have a voice. And you know, she had to navigate how we were going to do that, and um, and and also the voices of the networks when you're a nascent show. So she had a, a huge job on her hands, but she really, I think, she taught us listening. Right, and she taught us um, respect, and uh, she respected every writer. She taught us uh, about uh, that you need to be prepared to toil, and you know she would put in the hours, and she would carry the flag when we were all flailing and and trying to find our seat on a story. Um, Uh, She really was a a guide um, to us. There was no no ego at all involved. It was for the good of the. the good of this thing that we're all defining together. Yeah, and she, I remember asking her in the first season, because we were splitting uh, rewrites, and she would be rewriting some scripts, and we would be rewriting others. And so I said, so, you know, when do you know when you should rewrite the scene to maybe make it something that's a bit different, you know? (laughs) I was trying to feel my way into this, and she said, well, only, never do it for the sake of it being different. Only do it if you think it's going to be better. And if it's going to be better, then everybody wins. And, um, you know, uh, I would say she was. Uh, our process was very different in the first season. In the first season, people would come in and pitch ideas, and then we would talk about the ideas a little bit, and then a writer would go away, and they'd come back with more or less um, uh, um, uh, 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 an outline. You know, we'd get a story area approved, and a writer would go away and come back with an outline, and then we'd all give notes on the outline, and maybe we'd have to rebreak and rework some stuff. And then the writer would go away and we'd do the draft. And uh, we had such great writers in that first season, seasoned writers and writers with voices, uh, Esther Spaulding and Tracy Forbes, Adam Barkin. Um, and uh, it, it worked really well. And then we did that in the second season as well. And I think by the third season, we started to learn that maybe that's not the way we should be doing the show anymore. And we started to break the stories um, as a It was a lot more, a room. yeah, it was yeah. A much more of a team, uh, it was much more teamwork involved from, you know, just the, the first verbal pitches to narrowing down which ones should move forward to once that was, uh, once that was solid doing a, a, a one-page story proposal, uh, feedback from everybody, and then most importantly, once that was approved, taking that and making it, making every step of it, every five acts of it, making it make sense from everyone's point of view. Everyone contributes to that. Everyone's ideas um, were invested. Everyone in takes ownership. Thing. Yeah, everybody yeah. Everybody plays a part in every episode. It was much less fragmented. It was much less, we're going to do a huddle every week and a half, but in the meantime, everyone is sort of scattered to their separate rooms. This was much more of a, we're all in this uh, together, and we all stand behind each episode. Okay, that sounds like a good place to leave off. We'll... Uh well, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, about the story breaking process in the room when we get back. But uh, for now, you want to you want to set up the episode that we're going to watch. Why why you chose this episode and and where this fits a little yeah. bit of history of it, maybe. Well, yeah, because this episode it, it's you know it's very different from the first season. We don't really know the situation, what's going on. Um, uh, the story shifts. There's some pretty significant turns in the episode. 
Um, it's third season, so we get to spend a little bit more time than we did in the first two seasons on character. So this is a, a big episode for Rico Colantoni. Um, this is midway through the third season, and uh, we wanted to we wanted to do an episode that spoke to the theme of the series again. Every season we choose two or three episodes that speak to the theme of the human cost of heroism. Um, so for this episode we chose to go into a 911 uh, call center and explore that world a little bit. This was a really um, researched episode as well. Stephanie and I went to uh, the Peel 911 call center and spent time in there and and talk to the folks who, who run it, and we wanted to try and evoke what that, <coughs> that feeling was. And we'd wanted to do a 911 call center story for quite a long time, mm -hmm. but what's the story? Mm -hmm. And uh, this was one of the toughest episodes for us to, to write, because we s this is it, we're gonna write, this is gonna be the 911 call center story, um, but there's still no story. <laughs> so we, 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 uh, a story. <laughs> we found another story that was, um, uh, a little bit ripped from the headlines, I guess. Uh, we were doing the math on this on the way over here and uh, looking at the stories that we're writing this season. And a lot of them are, are, are pretty pretty topical. You know, we have, we have a riot story, which, you know, is inspired because of uh, the G20. Um, we have a barefoot bandit kind of story. Uh, and this one was about a, uh, a, a little boy in England and what had happened was his father was pulled over by police on the side of the road and police came to his car, they took him out of the car, they shoved him into the back of a van. Um, meanwhile, his wife and his small son were taken from their home and they were all brought to this Brinks Depot kind of place and this was the guy that had the, the password to get into this uh, vault which had tens of millions of pounds in it. And, uh, and these were not, of course, these were bad guys dressed as cops. Right. Um, and they... <coughs> they put them literally behind behind bars while they were busy getting their uh, getting their loot. Um, but the little boy was small enough that he was able to escape, and he actually saw the faces of these bad guys. Um, and he had to spend many years after that in witness protection <coughs> because these guys had got away with it. But there was always the threat of them coming back to find him. Wow, is it a pretty chilling? So we, so we figured out a way to marry that into the call center story. As cool. Well. All right. Well, let's uh, let's screen the episode, and uh, then we'll come back. We'll talk about it a little bit more. Cool. Thanks very much. stuff that was great thank you very much for that um tell us a little bit about uh, was there anything sort of in terms of how it developed in production any, any like how did you go about the breaking of that and how did it change in the break mm. <coughs> it's funny it, it had a, a very different beginning uh we had seen 50 dead men walking mm. um i don't know if you guys have seen that um, and there was something so haunting about the idea that 
you know, so many years after, there are still people being hunted and living secretly. And so our, uh, we, we knew we wanted the 911 thing, but we wanted also, as an exception, to not necessarily open into the heart and soul of the person holding the gun, the bad guy. These are about as close to classic TV bad guys as we've ever done, just the black leather jackets and the serious expression. And, you know, we, don't <laughs> we don't get into their life stories at all, really. Um, we were not able to find a way that the IRA vendetta so many generations later was, it, it just, it wasn't working. Then we came across the true story of this boy who had witnessed uh, something he shouldn't have seen. Um, and it, it was tough, I don't, it's, it's funny, uh, so many episodes you think, well, this one will be the one that kills us, we can't get past this one. Mm. And then we do, and then we get the next one, we think, I, this, we have to stop here because there's no way past this one, and then we get past that one again. It's, in retrospect, I don't remember exactly what our brick walls were. I just remember we came close to abandoning this one a couple of times. Do you remember any of that? Well, the brick wall was, was just finding the story. I think it was finding a story that could go with the 911 call center thing, and that was what we were really invested in, but we couldn't. You know, what could somebody who's in a very static position do? And the only way we could really discover the story was to look at it thematically. And uh, sometimes, I don't know, when you guys write, you know, you start off with a theme and you want to explore that theme. Sometimes you don't discover the theme until you're in the draft and you go mm -hmm. back and you think through it and then there's another layer and, and a level uh, and a deepening path that happens once you really nail what that theme is. And you know, we, we, we operate both ways and I think this one we had to go to the theme and how does the Diamond One Center call operator connect to uh, Greg Parker. We need to come up with a story that's going to be a personal story so that there's is parallel stories, and somehow we got to come up with this 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 guest story that is also about um, isolation and moving on despite the pain, and always finding a way to go forward. And you know that was Greg Parker's story, having lost his family ten years ago. That's this uh, operator's story, having lost her daughter. It's the story that's in the present about what do you do. And this was the nugget I think that we ended up with. What do you do when you ignore a call? And that call leads to what you think is somebody's death and you make a mistake. How do you get back and get back on the job? Um, so I think that was the challenge. Kelly Macon brought a lot to this episode mm, yeah. as well. Um, you know, the image of her being dragged out from under the bed, which is uh, a bit of a lift from that uh, Liam Neeson movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but homage. A little homage. That's, homage. that's the correct term. Um, but that, that, was, that was his and... and uh, in the first act, the uh, the stylized, we had the phone call scripted as being played and Parker listening to the phone call as they moved through the house that he can try and imagine what this girl is going through. And then Kelly really wanted to visualize that and, and to be able to go back and see flashes of that. And that was that was his flourish as well. And, and the beautiful, the image of the girl lying on her back and then pulling up to this mm -hmm. completely anonymous yeah. suburb, that was his, his idea as well. So that was a, a really good convergence of what he was imagining. You talk about how to, um, the brick wall, and hitting the brick wall and how to work it. And it's funny because you, um, so often, I, I think one of the things that separates professional writers from, from people who would like to write but don't, is that, you know, you've got to keep working it. You've got to keep p p pitching it and keep, and, and break through. The desire to stop is almost overwhelming, and, and you push through that and find it. But when do you know... 
when do you know when you've got to let it go? Like, I mean, they, obviously there must be some stories that you've let go. Do you get the sense of what's the difference between the one where you finally do push through and there's the breakthrough and the one where you finally do have to abandon it because you can't make it work? I think it's because you, you feel it in your bones. You have to feel it in your bones. And if you feel in your bones that the story is there, like this one, like we knew we had to crack this one. We knew we had to get to the theme of the human cost of heroism and the 911 call center. There has to be a way to do it. And maybe it's, it's the feeling in the bones isn't because you're right. Maybe it's just because you have the conviction to see it through. Hmm. Right? And the times when you don't feel it in your bones, you know, maybe your brain isn't going to kick into that 110% overdrive and you're not going to be able to crest the wave and, 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 and find the story. And there are times when we get quite ruthless about it in the room and we, we set a deadline and we say, you know what, we have, we're all of us great brains in the room, writers, we need to find a way to make this story work and uh, we have been working it for on and off for a month and it's hitting the brick wall and now we're going to give ourselves two hours. And at the end of two hours, we're all going to be very honest, and um, you know, and then we'll make the the call to to throw a story out. And uh, you know, knock on wood, we haven't had to do it too often this season. Um, we've had lots of stories thrown out on us over the years, of course, as well. And um, maybe that's because we haven't had the discipline to recognize that we're hitting the brick wall, and that we, as the uh, the originators of the story, need to throw the story out before it gets. You know, to the next line of gatekeepers. Let's uh, let's just do the geek down for a second here. Just uh, uh, how long? How long? How many people generally do you have in the room when you break a story? How long does it take you to break a story? Uh, how long do you give people to write outlines for drafts? All that sort of nitty gritty stuff. Uh, we blue sky uh, areas. Uh, when we land in an area that we like, we um, we tent pole it. So sometimes we'll figure out what the ending is first. Uh, then we'll figure out what the act breaks are, and we're a five-act show. Um, we'll fill in some turns within the acts, and we'll put that on the board. And when we feel like we've got enough to write a one-page document, then, then, uh, then the writer that's going to be tasked with writing the episode will, will write that. Um, and usually it's a pretty specific uh, doc. You know, the, the network's... Um, like to see that the story has legs, that there are going to be enough turns, red herrings, want to know how the team's going to change tactics, they want to know, you know, a little taste of what the team story is going to be. Um, we always uh, lead off every one-page document with a one-liner logline so that the reader knows what this story is going to be about because with a procedural, you're going to take them paragraph by, by paragraph through the turns but you need them to understand what the story is going to be about, so they're not confused when they when they read it. Um, so usually we give a day or two for a writer to come up with that, and then it comes back to the room, and either the writers will take a pass or we'll take it on directly. We do a pass; it goes to um, our exec producers. You know, they thumbs up it or ask for a few revisions. Then we send it to the networks. We get notes, and then we do a fine break after we have clearance and we have a viewpoint from the networks. Then we fine break the story, and that takes about a day, um, and we just we beat it out completely. Right? A, a day is a good a good break. A day is a good a good break. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Days. Some of them are tough. The ones <laughs> where you start to get close to the wall. Yeah. And then the writer gets the uh, gets the outline, and uh, generally ten days, and we try and give them an extra weekend on that right, as well. Sure. Um, and then. Notes on the outline, then we do a pass, then it goes to the networks. And How long are those outlines? Uh, 
they've gotten longer this season. Um, ideally, 12 to 15 pages. So, real, so quite detailed. And sometimes as long as 20 to 22 pages as well. Um, and then drafts, you know, two weeks to draft. And those sometimes come to 65 pages or something. 65 pages and then scenes vary between 76 and um, when they really hate us in production, 110 scenes per episode. Wow, that's a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that doesn't count all the intercuts we put in. <laughs> it must really hate your first AD must just like well, does, he, does he just like greet you in the morning with a scowl or, or? Uh, yes quite often <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean our our, 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 uh, our boards are insane because um, the scenes are all parted out so uh, you know scene 71 uh, can have four parts to it because we're intercutting between team members and that's the, the thing when you have six people that are on this the same call, and they're all connected by a headset and listening to each other at the same time. There's a lot of coverage, and uh, we have you know, the best crew in the city. And I can see Michael nodding his head because he's been on our set and he knows how hard they work. But uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. All right, well, now's probably a good time. Y'all have been patient. It's time for you to give you your say. So uh, why don't we open up for questions? Yes. when you're expanding it, that document into a full script, do you come across um, you know, logic holes that you hadn't noticed before, so you fill them in, and sometimes we see a whole, you know, a whole rise in um, characterization or in credibility where extra research comes in, and it, 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 you know, all kinds of things can blossom um, that you hadn't anticipated at the outline level. But you don't, you don't reinvent, I think, something that's been uh, you know, tested pretty tough before it's been approved. Um, sometimes where you might get surprises coming back at, in, in the draft are where some larger scale questions may have been brought up by the Nets, like this whole last act, are you sure that it shouldn't be this person who's the threat? So we talk about that and we clear that, but we don't dig down in as much detail sometimes, so the writer will come back with a brand new thought. But usually it's, it's pretty faithful because the, hard, the heavy lifting has been done and the ground's been cleared, and it would not make sense to, to reinvent. Um, we read a lot of uh, scripts this this summer, and I, you know I, I I I almost we're looking for an original voice I think more than like a really well done spec, you know because you know ideally you want to see a good spec where you can see that they get the voice of a show, but then you want to see something original as well, and we have a harder time hiring writers that don't have original. Material because you don't really know. You know, we, we want we want to know that someone on our staff has something that they want to say, and it's important to us to see what it is that they've chosen to present to the world. You know, what is the story that I want to tell, and how do I want people that read me to perceive what I have to say? And uh, writing any uh, original scripts 
there's a huge amount of work and it's a labor of love and we're very interested in seeing um, you know where people what, what people put that love into um, craft is craft is really important but um, we can we can teach the structure of the show you know now that we, we beat it out we can we can we can walk any writer through through what we do and you know we have a bank now of uh, 50 episodes that writers can watch so that they can they can get that into their bones but what we're really interested in is is, is a fresh voice and you know we look laterally we have a writer now on our staff uh, Aubrey Nealon who is uh, a, a tremendous tremendous addition uh, to our team and uh, he um, he comes from the world of features he's, he's directed uh, and written his own features he, we, we'd met him a number of years ago doing on the short film circuit he very bravely sent us actually a flashpoint uh, spec which we read about a year a year, year and a half ago and it was it was really good and uh, we're actually making it uh, this season you know we've gone back and stripped it back and we're re-breaking it um, you know you've just undone about oh, you, but you know what? right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know and I know the rule is you know don't send don't send the show uh, you know don't send a flashpoint to a flashpoint showrunner, but you could like help a brother out and say, "Talk about how it was the exception that proves." It was totally the exception to the rule, and we don't we don't often read them uh, either uh, because we don't have the time, and because we know that we're probably we'd ask for something different if we're interested in that writer because we're going to to judge it much more harshly. But Aubrey did not approach us looking for a job; he approached us looking for feedback on this spec because he's interested in broadening and getting into television. So we liked his writing. We thought his uh, features had a lot of heart, uh, original voice, great dialogue, asked to see more material, and I think he had a modern family. Anyway, it was a comedy sample. It was really good. And he also had a movie of the week about Greenpeace or something. Like, the styles were all over the map, but the intelligence was, like, shone right through that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, sometimes you get a feeling this is someone, you're going to be cooped up in this little pressure cooker of a room for so many months. You want to like the person and really be excited about their creativity, and, and so that's kind of what we did that. Yeah, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't staff a show of Aubrey's. Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't... St- we wouldn't have a writing staff of Aubrey's, but he, we were able to bring that voice into the room and know that he's he's uh, he's complimented by uh, Michael McLennan, who's on our staff, who has uh, a lot of years of experience in in television and in um, in running his own shows as well. So, uh, you know, it's he was the risk slot. We had a slot with somebody, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, you know every there's it, a room a room's composition is is uh, there's there's no two people who have exactly the same function in it. So he, that, that, was, that was his. But original stuff is way more fun, I have to say. Like, we'll totally read, read specs of, of any show, and you know, I love reading specs of you know, A Good Wife or something like that, which is a good show to spec right now. But original stuff, I've got to say, that's, that's just what we like. Yeah. This year, um, uh, do, do you find, is there, is there if, if a writer is looking to develop their skill set, is there a skill set in the room that is more premium? than others in terms of what do you find it's very hard to find a writer that's good at? What's the, I mean, I, I've heard other people say, for instance, people tend to have this, this feeling that they feel like sparkling dialogue is, is, is the hardest thing to do, where in reality there's a lot of writers that can do sparkling do- dialogue. What do you find is the, is the, uh, is the thing that if you're going to develop one thing and, and, and that's a skill that's going to do you in better stead than maybe some of the others? Or is there something like that? 
Um, I think the thing that jumps out to me the most beyond mastering the mechanics and sparkling dialogue and stuff is if I, just personally, if I get a sense from this writer that they are very, very interested in uh, in people and in the truth of what people experience as opposed to the TV version and the, rather than the conventions that we're, we're accustomed to, if someone is writing something that they believe and if that kind of integrity is something that you can read, I think that that's a very abstract kind of answer. Um, I, I guess what I mean is if something has been researched with love and developed with love and presented with restraint and sometimes presented with passion, but if, if uh, I wish I could <laughs> be a little more lucid about it. I think there's, there's an integrity that is not about eagerness to please. Mm -hmm. It's not about, I can, I can do any dance you want me to. I can emulate anything you want me to. It's something about a, a genuine curiosity about people and, and emotion. Yeah. And we've, we've hired, you know, based on what we get from people in the room when we're interviewing as well, you know, and uh, somebody that that is, um, I, you know, just people that think and people that feel. I mean, that's, that's what we're looking for in this show. There's, there's a lot of people that, that can do the architecture of a story. We're looking for people that can do that and also can add that, that other level as well. And, and dialogue is, is, is good, you know, but we can always rewrite dialogue, you know, and we probably will just because we know the show and we've, we've done so many episodes. Um, but I'll, I'll give you an example of another writer that we hired this year, uh, uh, Larry Bambrick, who uh, comes from... Uh, He's of our generation, maybe he's a couple years older than me and stuff. He, uh, he's the executive producer of a show called Mayday, which is uh, a reality TV show about plane crashes. And uh, he came to our attention uh, through Virginia Rankin, who was working at the Film Center and uh, was on the committee that was reading scripts coming out of there. And uh, she said, you should look at this guy. And we read his uh, uh, house spec and his original pilot, which was about a world that he knew very well. He's a pilot that's about the aviation industry, but the show had a lot of heart to it. Um, and we knew that he'd just been accepted into the film center as well. But we met with him and sat with him, and he kind of, he grabbed us in two ways. One is he talked about Mayday, and he talked about walking into that show and about the network notes that he was getting, where they were saying, but you want to you wanna start off with the plane crash, right? And then you want to you wanna get to the why and all that. And he says, but that's not a good dramatic story. You know, you want, it, you want the slow build. And he, he, had, he had a very great articulation of, of how he defended network notes and how he actually um, uh, made that show into being the success it is after uh, many, many seasons. But also, he, he, he was, he's a nice guy, and he's a warm guy, and he's not afraid to wear his heart on his sleeve a little bit. And I, I like people who aren't afraid to wear their hearts on their sleeve. You know, I, they're, they're, they're rare. And, and he's been great, and he's... He's written a couple of episodes, and, and he's a guy that we can, we can entrust with, with rewriting. And he was our most junior guy in the room, you know. He's so we think laterally, and, uh, and I don't. But the, the room is about it. It's, it's the sum of its parts, you know. You you need people that are great on story as well. So you know we'll meet certain people because we know they're going to uh, to bring a very analytical brain into the room. They're going to be able to come up with a turn, you know, halfway through. Uh, the story that's going to 
you know get get your get your ass out of deep water when you're when you're struggling and um, uh, it's a rambly stupid answer. No, it's a great <laughs> answer. It's not stupid at all. Help me so Canadian. Um, okay, we've got a fifth row there, right there. Yeah, hi. Can you guys get two sets of network notes or just one? Like you get one kind of combined one from CPB and CBS, or do you have two different sets? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you, you just have one. No, no, we have two. Okay, so can you explain a little bit like the differences? Like, are there big differences between the CPB set and the CBS set, or are they generally along the same thing, or are there, is there big kind of differences between the two? There, there haven't been as much as we kind of were bracing ourselves for. We kind of were expecting maybe the cliche of the American sensibility versus the Canadian, but they, they actually are reaching for the same thing, and, and uh, luckily it's, it's pretty much what, what we're trying to reach as well. Um, yeah, if they were both, if you know, if, if we had sold to a cable net in the states and we were airing on CTV here, then I think you may get very conflicting sets of notes. But they're both big broadcast networks, and they're both after the same product and CTV or CBS products. And so, um, you know, and I and I think that, uh, uh, I mean, we have had conflicting sets of notes in the past, and um, I don't think we deferred especially to either network. Sometimes we. If there's a if there's a split vote, then then we'll go with what we like and and, and argue you know with with one or the other why we want to uh, to to uh, to go down that path. And I, I would say that the relationship has evolved as well. CBS was much more hands-on with their notes in the early phases of development, and uh, by the time you get to season four, there's you get a lot more uh, a lot more leeway. Um, we have an excellent executive at CTV, Trish Williams. Um, who you know I, I I can't praise enough, but she's very smart. She's been with the show a long time, and uh, her notes are great. And um, she uh, she sets the tone. She sets the tone, and and because uh, they they read each other's notes, so they know what what notes have already yeah, been given. So that, they don't have to that's new for this season. That's new for this season. Is is Trish turns around notes quite quickly, and they're written, and uh, she CCs our American partners, and uh, you know I think that they they appreciate the work. She does, and then they, they also weigh in as well. Great. Okay. Yes? I thought the episode did a good job of, of providing what you called a, a teaspoon of, of character. You know, and that Kate had that, uh, she's got that line about her, her daughter dying. We have the sea story with the, the sun showing up, where it doesn't seem like it's too much, it doesn't seem like it's too little. Can you talk about how you balance those kinds of stories where you, where you know that's enough for that character, it's enough to motivate that character? Well, <coughs> you know, the, we think of it this way. You, you want an episode to be able to stand alone. Like, I think when you watch that episode, you get that this is a father and son, and they haven't seen each other for a long time, and that the son learns something about the father in the course of the episode, and they're going to start talking again. And that's kind of intriguing to watch. Um, if you're a loyal viewer to the show, then you will have seen backstory that sets that up, and we dole that out. There's an episode uh, in which... Uh, Parker's backstory is revealed, and he uh, he fell off the rails as a, as a cop ten years ago, became a heavy drinker, and uh, um, a case that he was involved with just when he fell off the rails comes back to haunt him. And through that, we learn that he had been a drinker and that his uh, family had left him. Uh, we have his son referenced for uh, two and a half seasons before we see him. So, the character of Dean Parker's son. Is a, is a motif in Parker's negotiations. He talks about his son a lot, but we never actually see him. So this episode is 
you know, is, is rewarding for, for the fans. And you know what? We don't go back and we don't see Dean again for a long time. But in season four, we'll come back and, and we'll see him again and we'll set it up again in a way that's, that's going to be meaningful to his character um, as it's developed over the season, but also meaningful thematically to the episode uh, itself. And we wouldn't have put him into this episode if we didn't feel that we could thematically pay off what was going on in our A and B stories as well. I mean, it is the C story in this in this episode. Word. I think that there are some episodes where it's just a matter of if, if we had uh, more time to step back and reflect and balance and you know reclaim an idea that we felt was worth fighting for or look at ways that this can be accommodated without feeling too compromised. I think I think that's kind of more the way to look at it. I don't think that there's any episodes that make us really uncomfortable. It's just there are some that we're prouder of than others, and we always will remember the circumstances that brought about uh, an episode that we don't feel was at the level we would have hoped. Um, but I don't know if we can exactly point to a, a mistakes. Like, I mean, I can I can think of one episode that was pulled back and forth in a couple of different directions and was not as coherent or as emotionally satisfying, um, and it was because we were in the midst of this whole redefinition of our style and of our structure, and we um, had no flashbacks at all the whole first season that happened, suddenly flashbacks were allowed, and in this one, we used flashbacks in a way that we never did since as well, which was three versions of the past. Did this happen? Or did this happen? Or did this happen? Which is kind of not our show, exactly. Um, I don't consider that a, a mistake, but it was, it, it sort of stepped outside the bounds of, um, I think, what we would have done if we'd had more it's like a very fast-moving conveyor belt, and there's only so long you can play with one thing before you've got to take care of the next one. And I think that one flew by pretty fast. And sometimes you don't know until you see it. You know, like you, 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 we broke that episode, and it was a tough one, and it went through many permutations because it was right on that line where we transitioned from the new structure to from the old structure. And um, it's it's only when you, you know, with that one, it's only when you watch it, I think, that we really understood that this wasn't something we really wanted to do again. So it wasn't a mistake. There are many people that enjoyed that episode and uh, you know, had a great performance at the heart of it, an award-winning performance. Um, it's not so much about mis making mistakes. It's learning how to get better and learning how to talk to networks. That's a skill that has taken, that took us a few years to learn. Um, learning how to talk to Americans is a, is a very specific skill set. Uh, and, and I should clarify actually that question about talking to networks is that this year we get written notes. For the first three years of the series, we had written notes from CTV and we had phone calls with CBS Paramount. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, that's, that's a real art, the art of the notes call is. <laughs> I, I, I don't think we ever got really great at it, but I think we, we got a little bit better as we went along. Um, it's, a, it's sort of a, a high-stress, multiple-voice uh, conference call where you're trying to not interrupt and overlap and everyone's trying to listen. But it's also, you know, at the, at the end of a very long day for us Canadians, it's after our working hours. It's usually supper time, bath time, whatever. And uh, for them, it's their, it's their working hours. And so trying to stay focused and, and lucid and open-minded about the suggestions that are coming in and thinking on your toes. And if they have a really tough question, you've got to come back with an answer or you feel kind of foolish. 
the high stress, um, and they, we, it became more and more comfortable over time. And it was part of our moving towards breaking the stories as a group and making sure that we were in the room and breaking and beating every story because we had to know every single beat of that story. And, you know, when you have your head in six, seven, eight episodes at the same time, then all of a sudden you've got a notes call on this outline that you sent in three days ago, and meanwhile you've been working on these five other things. You know, and then you get into a phone call that's deferred an hour, so you go back and you work on something else. And then all of a sudden you've got to be on and you've got to remember every single beat of that story. Like, that's really, really, really hard. <laughs> and when you break it together, you got you got the bullshit check right there in front of you too. Right? Yeah, it's a bit of a fail-safe system, I guess. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you, is there anything else you can say about sort of that, that just just uh, the the art of dealing with the networks, the one-on-one version of, of of what you've learned, what you would what you should never do dealing with a network, or what you know, give them, if you can come up with two pieces of advice to give them all about their uh, their uh, care and pruning of the network relationship. Well, don't be defensive. I think is really important uh, listen um, take your time if you don't if you can't absorb a note and you can't understand what it's saying or you violently disagree with it take the time to take it back and take it in and say that's, that's, that's really interesting uh, that's a totally interesting idea we're going to take that away and we're going to think about it and then you carefully craft if there's a note you're going to disagree with you take your time and you think through all the reasoning as to why you're going to do it. And maybe you try their note, and you say, we tried to do this, and these are the problems that we went in, ran into, so we went in this other direction instead. But never ignore a note. Um, you know, always take a note, even if it's going to just take you in a little lateral place. If it's not going to diminish the story, there's no harm in you, mm-hmm. in you doing it. And, and the cliches are true. Like, there's no such thing as a bad note, and it's really, really... Well, actually, there are, but, you know. <laughs> somebody, there's an entire book of them, I believe. Uh, yes. The Martian wouldn't say that. Um, I, somebody once said to me that the way they put it, and I thought, I thought it was a, I feel like, always respect the bump, <laughs> if yeah. not the note. If not the, you know, the, the, they might not be good about coming with solutions. They may not, they may not be good about uh, really diagnosing what it is they find wrong about it, but the fact they bump on something you have to get at why they bumped. Yeah, and also don't see the people that you're talking to as your opponents. Mm-hmm. You know, they are um, they are people who are putting their creative souls on the line as well. You know, and uh, they it's it's hard to give notes. You know, I mean, we all know that as writers, you give notes on on, on your fellow writers' uh, scripts, and it's it's not an easy job to do, and it's got to be even harder for someone who is not trained as a writer to do. I'm being very gracious towards network executives, of course, but but they are people, and like talk to them and engage with them and have a relationship, and you know, ask them how they're doing and talk about some of the other stuff besides the episode, and don't go into uh, a conversation with a, ah, okay, how am I going to survive this encounter with with this beast in this cage? It's not. We're all just people, and everyone is vested in making a really good show. That's really good advice. Kiss ass. Um, <laughs> so, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but it took me. It took me three seasons to learn that. It yeah. took me three seasons to learn to not be scared about getting on that phone and having to defend stuff coming down the pipeline. And by the third season, we realized you can get on the phone and you can talk about the small stuff. And yeah, it's going to be small talk sometimes. It's going to be a bit bullshitty as well. But you get to know someone, and then all of a sudden, it becomes a lot easier to talk about yeah. stuff. That's uh, very true. Never forget there's a person behind that. Yeah, it's true. Yes. I have a question uh, from the breakdown to the actual starting point pre-production side, because some episodes will be a little bit heavier on production-wise, a little bit more 
we we involve our um, you know Bill and Emery are involved in every step of the way, and you know they 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 uh, they have a lot of passion as well. And if and if they are feeling our passion and they feel passion for an episode, then they're going to see what they can do to make sure it happens because they're the ones that that, that the buck is going to stop with. Um, we also have uh, you know a producer John Calvert, who's the guy that oversees all the money and um, and will tell you you know if this one's going to break the bank or not and if he buys into it if he thinks it's a, if it's a good episode if he thinks this episode has something to say then they will they will contort and they will they will find ways to make it happen and that's why we're blessed with you know with such a a great team that being said John Calvert will also put his you know cowboy boots up on the desk and tell you well that's not going to happen <laughs> if, if if he doesn't buy into it either you know as an example we have a, a an episode that we're uh, we've just we've just outlined um, that's set in an airplane and it's a hijacking, and getting an airplane is not easy in this town. Um, but you know, everyone believed in the story, and uh, we got a lot of comments from the production team saying, "You're not still doing the airplane story, are you?" Right? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, "Yeah, we're still doing it," and and it's because you know Calvert didn't say, oh, "I don't think this is going to happen," and Bill and Emery never said. Well, I don't think we should do this because we're we're worried about you know everyone believes in it and those episodes you make happen, and yes, yeah, sometimes like the G20 episode that we did it was not a G20 episode but it was about a riot, and that episode cost probably a bit more money than it should, but you know it's an important story to do in the context of a SWAT team, and we will write a bottle episode in episode slot 16 to <laughs> atone. You know, That's good. yeah, it's a. Uh one, uh, again, one of the things that there are no problems in series television production if you cost it far enough out, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's, uh, it's one of these things where I think that, you know, that's why, again, the personalities of the people are so important and being able to actually get along with the people and, and see their t- talent sets and marshal everyone's talents to the maximum ability. It's something that we don't always do. It's something, you know, they don't always do well in the United States either. But it's so important because the problem that you solve eight, eight, uh, eight weeks out is much better than the problem you have to solve the day after tomorrow. Or, you know, you, you get a much better solution mm-hmm. on that thing. Um, I think we have time for two more questions, and then we're going to have to cap it, even though I'm sure uh, they can probably keep talking to you guys while I found this incredibly interesting. Uh, we have one or two more questions to end the night. Anybody burning to ask anything? Anybody that hasn't asked one? Yeah? Um, you mentioned that... Uh have to decide what to let go of, say, episode 10, so you can make sure you don't miss out or lose out on episode 18 later on, and you have to decide what to move on. How do you decide that something is good enough, and it's time to quit rewriting it and just let it go to network printers? By then, it's been edited <laughs> and shot, because <laughs> you're still... It's never... I, I don't think... I don't think there's ever a point in writing a script where you think, that's as good as this is going to get. Or you do briefly, and then notes start coming in, and then you realize it's not as good as I hoped, or whatever. But if you wanted to sort of polish each paragraph, you you, you could spend a year on each one, and I don't know if it would necessarily get better. Mm-hmm. I think it's torn out of your hands. But con- concretely, though, I mean, you can have an, an outline that, that comes in, and you know you have a, a, a deadline of the next day to submit it to the networks. And you have a choice. You can let the network deadline drift a day, <laughs> and they're not really going to probably care too much. Um, or you can know that there's three or four things wrong and trust that they're going to probably flag those things as well and then you can send it in and then incorporate your notes and your thoughts into the next phase 
as well. And usually everyone winds up being on the same page. Also, it's discipline when you're in production and when you're writing on the pinks and the blues, especially in that big pass that happens on the pinks, because usually at that point you're still dealing with creative notes coming from producers and from your own heads and from the networks, and at the same time you have to do a very big pass that's all about production and rewriting to location. And uh, that's where I find you you have to be tough on yourself and economize. This is this is where I totally geek out and do the... I, you do Canadian pink, right? Yeah. Okay. Pink. So for pink people blue, listening to the yeah. podcast, what he's talking about is the white production script is first, and you're talking about the second production script. That's right, right yeah. Because pink and blue are reversed in the United States for whatever weird reason. Um, last question, Karen. Well, I, 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 you know, we can speak from our experience, and I, we can, I can comment a little bit based on having heard of the experience of others as well. And uh, you know, I, I can tell you that that we are in a lucky uh, and functional and very good relationship with our executive producers. <coughs> um, you know, we we do divide and and conquer. We we run the writing room, and we're the head writers, and we handle concept meetings and production meetings and we go on location and we work with the director um, and uh, and Bill and Anne-Marie uh, are part of that process as well and contribute every step of the way. They have um, a, a, a great uh, sense of taste and aesthetic and we uh, very naively when we first pitched the show we said oh, this, is, this is the story, this is what it's going to be, it's going to have all the pace of 24 and the look of CSI Miami, right? <laughs> And uh, no one was really making television that looked like that, but Anne Marie, uh, Anne Marie did, and she, she put everything on the screen, and, and that is what they do. And they also, you know, their their creativity is probably um, uh, burns brightest in the edit room, and uh, on our show, that's uh, that's that's their that's their arena. Is you know we're we're allowed to go into the edit room, um, but. They are so involved in uh, being on top of every outline and every draft and every every script and every revision. They are on set as well. We can actually trust them with it because they know the story as as well as we do. And the conversations that we have with them, and we'll check in with each other sometimes. And of course, there's going to be things you disagree on, um, and we do disagree sometimes. Most of the time, we don't. But the founding principle for us is that. Everything has to flow outwards from the four of us, and the four of us have to be on the same page. And only in that way can we kind of run the show together. You know, in the same way that Stephanie and I, as head writers in our room, we have to have a consistent viewpoint. You know, we can when we're breaking. Sure, we can we can bounce things around. But when we're giving notes, we have to know that we both agree with everything that we're sending out. That's written. We both have to be able to stand behind and defend uh, what we have to say. And and uh, Bill and Amory do that, and then the four of us try and do that together as well. Um, but they are they're creative producers, and uh, they have uh, stood by our vision uh, from day one, and their believers in our vision. And uh, every 
every script has gone through our typewriters, you know, and they've defended our, our right to do that. Wow. Well, I can honestly say this has been a genuine, absolute pleasure. Um, there are very few writers, there, there, there are no writers greater in this, uh, in this country that are more thoughtful and more uh, conscientious than the two of you, and uh, there's a reason why Flashpoint is probably one of the, you know, if we were to hold up a premier Canadian drama, uh, why Flashpoint um, occupies that slot for us now. Uh, uh, you model the best of behavior of writing, and uh, thank you very much for sharing all your insight tonight, and uh, we're all in your debt for being here, and thanks very much for coming by. Thanks for listening. You can follow Writing Life Updates for Mark Ellis, co-creator of Flashpoint, on Twitter by following at Flashpoint underscore TV. As for us, we'd love to hear from you, too. You can email us at writerstalkingtv at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please log on to iTunes and leave us positive feedback to help increase the profile of the show. This podcast is sponsored by the Writers Guild of Canada. The show's technical producer is Philip Vukovic. I'm Dennis McGrath, reminding you what Mark Twain said about choosing your words. I never write policemen because I can get the same money for cop.